Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This is my last episode in Australia uh, for a long while. I'm I'm leaving and flying over to the UK on Thursday, so next next tea cast will be in London from London, and that's very exciting for me. It means the last gig I'm doing in Australia will be tomorrow night. That's Monday night um, at, at the local Laughs. I'm not doing a full show. I'm just doing a spot, but it should be a really good lineup. Come by and say hello if you want, you know, hello slash goodbye if you want to. This week's episode is with Kirsty Wiebeck, who I've had on the podcast before, and we had a really interesting chat about, about uh, being disappointing or impressive, as well as the movement of language and uh, the joke that I'm doing at the moment that makes me most uncomfortable, that I'm pretty sure is going to be the death of me. So all of those things are going to be in the podcast and you can listen to those. I wanted to say thank you everybody who's been signing up on the Patreon. It's incredibly kind of you. I, I really appreciate it. It helps fund this podcast and my projects. And uh, if you have subscribed, you're a good person even if you haven't subscribed you might be a good person you could be a terrible person look in that one context along that one vector in that one instance you are doing something good and I appreciate it very much and other than that if you just want to hit me up for a chat email me on alicerfraser at gmail.com or tweet me at alliterative a-l-i-t-e-r-a-t-i-v-e I'll be doing previews in London one on the 2nd of July one on the 9th of July and I'll be doing a preview in Brighton as well, but I have to confirm the date of that. Uh, just follow me on the on the social media. I'll try and keep you up to date on those things there. That's it for me this week. Sorry, this is slightly scattered. I'm mid-packing. Uh, but I did want to get this out this week and um, to say thank you to everybody who's supported me so far. I've got merch up. Yes, I have merch. Oh, um, my fantastic uh, fan-turned-friend in Adelaide, Sarah, has helped me get merch up so if you want to buy uh, a bag that says emotional baggage which is uh, based on my own makeup bag that I have written emotional baggage on and some people sort of liked it so I thought I would do that there's also necklaces which have my my motto which is no one's gonna die we're all gonna die and it's my I don't know if it's my motto it's what I say to myself when I'm stressed out about things don't worry no one's gonna die if you mess this up but also in the broader context we're all gonna die so just do whatever it is that you're meant to be doing and uh, there's a USB of the resistance if you like hard copies of things and also there are little stacks of my kind of one-liner cards that are available so if you want any of those things they're all available on my website and you can buy them and we will send them to you and they're all, you know, ethically sourced and it's all good. That's that. Uh, from me, enough blithering. I will let you listen to this interesting conversation that I had with Kirsty. I thought it was fantastic. I love having her on the podcast. We ended up talking for like an hour and a half after that, but less broadcastable things. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to this. See you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hello, what are you drinking and who are you? I am Kirsty Weebeck. Friend of the podcast. Pardon? Friend of the podcast. Yes, I'd like to think a very good friend of the podcast. <laughs> I love this podcast. Um, I'm drinking green tea. Straight up green tea. Yeah, just straight up iced green tea, which is actually quite controversial because it's quite cold today. Yeah, I, I like, I, I respect your bravery. Yeah, thank you. This is probably the boldest thing I've done all week. <laughs> <laughs> What have you been wrestling with recently? What have you been thinking about? I've been thinking I've been thinking a lot 
recently about relationships. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. That oh, old yes. chestnut. That old chestnut happens. Yeah, it does happen. I've been thinking. I've been thinking a lot about my interpersonal relationships with people as and how they've shifted as a result of working as a stand-up comedian now. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose the. Um, the different ways in which I meet people these days and um, how I perceive the relationships versus how they perceive the relationships and maybe the, the different styles of relationships that I have now compared to before when I wasn't a performer. Yeah, it, it's a very odd thing when people hit on you after a gig because you know that they have a very particular idea of you. Yeah, And it's not necessarily... So it's one of those things where if you want to impress someone and you know them, then you want them to come to your show, to your gig, because you feel like that's... There's a lot of information about you. It's very personal. You're showing them your craft. You're showing them the thing that you're good at. You're showing them you at your best. But you don't want that to be the first impression they have of you. Right, right, definitely. I think there's an element as well where... I, I I get the impression that people feel like they know me mm-hmm. as a result of having seen some of my stand-up. And people often say that to me, if be it when I meet them face-to-face or say through my Facebook messages or, or other online sort of communication means people often say, this is probably weird for you because I feel like I know you but you don't know anything about me. Yeah. And... The interesting, the more interesting facet of that for me is the fact that I don't think that seeing even a lot of my stand-up would mean that you know me. Yeah. Because obviously we pick and choose what we put on stage. Yes. And I don't think an hour of my stand-up is actually a great representation of me as a whole human being. Yes. And the way you are in a relationship is often, well, is by necessity going to be different from the way that you are on stage unless you're one of those weird people who's on all the time and they're terrifying they're just <laughs> and, exhausting, and exhausting they're just, you can't you can't do that no no you can't yeah the, so there's that one level of the like forming a romantic relationship based on having met somebody at a gig or through your work in in one way or another um and you know, there's all there's also even the the friendship element as well, which I find really interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday about how even working in the entertainment industry, we all have those people that give us fangirl moments. Yes. And you can sit in the green room night in night out with some of your idols who inspired you to get into comedy and not bad an eyelid because they're your colleagues now and you respect them and you're um, on some kind of equal, even footing with them. Yeah. But every now and then somebody will walk in who will just drag you straight back to your 16-year-old self or whatever and you'll sit there for an hour and then eventually you'll be like, do you know what? They know that I'm a performer as well. I think it's okay to tell them yeah. how much... X shaped, <laughs> you my know, my life. youth or, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I always find it, I'm really interested in, in um, relationships in general, be they friendships or, or um, how you deal with colleagues or power structures and power imbalances or, and 
romantic relationships as well. And I like to think quite frequently about how we play those games as we transition in, into being an entertainer and how you find out all these new relationships exist that you never knew beforehand. Yes, yeah. I was um, I was talking about this just before we started the podcast, but um, my brother's one of my brother's best friends from school, I re- remember really clearly a speech at, uh, I think it was in his engagement party where my brother was like, you know, Nick is one of those people who will always impress you. You don't think you're underestimating him but you realise you must have been because he's always impressing you. He's always doing more and doing better than you thought that he was going to do. And I feel like that's the kind of person I would like to be, but I think I'm the opposite. Like, one of the best times in my life was in Cambridge where people were surprised that I was smart because I have an Australian accent. Right. So in Australia, my accent sounds prissy and overeducated, so people are not surprised that I'm smart. Right. Whereas in Cambridge, it's just a colonial ruffian accent. Like, it's okay. just a, you know, I, there's not that much difference in, to their ears between me and, I don't know, Luke Heggie, somebody who's got a really broad Australian accent. Right. They don't, they don't make those fine distinctions. And so when I would say something that was even vaguely intelligent, people would be like, oh, hello. Like, it, 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 was, a, it was an amazing feeling to be impressive in that way. Right. Where, you know, just to be given credit for having thoughts and ideas. I can, yeah, I can relate to that. Which I, ought to be perceived as a form of oppression, but was yeah. a real thrill for me. <laughs> no, I can, I can relate to it being a thrill as well because I still... Years down the track, I still get a kick out of when people find out that I speak Mandarin. Yeah. Like, I still get a kick out of people being like, what? It's like, you can barely string an English sentence together. What are you doing speaking Mandarin, you know? Um, uh, yeah, it, it is. It's a nice feeling to be impressive, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the biggest compliments that you could pay somebody as well. Like, saying that you feel like you're always underestimating them, even though you're not. Like, you... You highly regard them, but you still feel like that's not enough because they always go above and beyond. Yeah. Do you feel like being a comedian now, do you feel like that's an inhibitor to being able to be that impressive person again? Because Cause you're showing sort of the best of yourself on stage. Yeah, or, or just because of the way that people perceive you as a re- result of of you know you working as an entertainer like there's often that sort of pedestal thing isn't there where people are like I hate public speaking and you're doing it and you're telling us it'll be funny and then it is funny yeah I think the thing is that it's one of those um double binds that people get themselves into so you're sort of pursuing you're pursuing that feeling of being impressive by being on stage you you do that thing of of being impressive but then at the same time it sort of takes it out from under you does that make sense? I don't know if I'm articulating this well enough. In the same moment, so you're, you're, does it take it out? Yeah. So you're mm-hmm. chasing out. You're chasing that dragon of be of impressing other people, of of getting their, you know, surprise and affection, and and they think you know highly of you when you make them laugh because it's a it's a thing. Uh, but at the same time, there's this immediate thing. Well, of course, of course, she's going to make me laugh. That's her job. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then that when you make don't sense. make them laugh off stage, when you're not at work, then you're a letdown. Yeah, okay, that does make sense. So even though you're pursuing that moment of like, oh, wow, you t- immediately take it out of, 
out of under your feet for the future. Yeah, because then it's just expected. Yeah. It's just like, well, she is funny. We're seeing her show again. It will be funny because she is funny. Yes. So then maybe it's more that you're just maintaining an expectation than impressing people anymore. Yeah. Like your established fan base or people that repeatedly come back, they're just like, well, it's a given. Yes. She is funny. But then also if they meet you in real life in the supermarket or something and you're not that version of yourself, the kind of... You know, a laugh every thirty-five seconds minimum. Yeah. Then, yeah. then they're like, "Boy, I thought she was really funny, but she's not." <laughs> you know, it's yeah. all pretend and lies. You don't have the fake flower brooch on that you squirt water at them, <laughs> <laughs> out of, like at the register. Like, hey, Alice, like I've seen your shows before. You're that comedian, and you're like, whoop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't immediately start tap dancing. Yeah, yeah. You're just like, thank you, thank you so much, and like, and that's the thing as well is that when you meet people, they're often very complimentary about your work and they'll tell you about the show that they saw and the context in which they know you, which makes perfect sense. But there's only so many things that you can say in response to that. Yes. And generally for a lot of us, I think it's just a very simple like, thank you so much, like I appreciate you coming out to my shows, I'm glad you've enjoyed them. Yeah. Lovely to meet you. And then that's the end. That's the end and it's not very funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it, it's, it's, that's a really, I think generally I'm quite uncomfortable with... Um, profuse expressions of emotion um i think for a couple of reasons one is because you there's nothing that you can i often i have a friend who i met in america who is one of these incredibly sincere people and he Mm -hmm. will just in the middle of a of a conversation he'll put his hand on your knee or he'll hold your hand and he'll look into your eyes and say you know you mean so much to me you're such an incredible person and i i feel like it's my job to kind of (laughs) <laughs> put the brakes on because otherwise we'll end up making out because it's, you know what I mean? It's just like I don't know how to meet this with an equal level of sincerity. Like I don't know how to control this situation <laughs> other than by kind of grounding the emotion and sort of being like, oh, cool, you know, taking it down a notch, you know, I can't. It's either take it down a notch or make it out. <laughs> yeah, those are, the, those are your options. I know that's really stupid. But the other side of it is that like, so I saw this man uh, jump out of a, or fall, I don't know, hit hit the ground out of a high place um, on Monday this week, and uh, it was it was upsetting. And I called the ambulance, and that was about all I could do. I waited until they came. Uh, there was a lady there who was a nurse who was able to provide more sort of practical help, um, but when I was finding myself after then kind of a bit I didn't feel emotional but my body was kind of my heart was thumping and I couldn't get to sleep things like that so I, I wrote it up I wrote it out and like I say wrote it out in like a very specific way because if you if you write it then it's out of you right so by articulating a really strong emotion you have some control over it because you're necessarily making it smaller like by containing it in words it is smaller than the overwhelming feeling Okay. This is all just inside my head. This is all my kind of emotional framework. Sure. But I think that's one of the reasons why I find it difficult expressing kind of positive emotions as well, love and and um, affection and, and those sincere moments because I feel like articulating them reduces them. Okay, that's interesting. So it makes them smaller. It makes them contained. It cuts out a lot of them to in order, you know... As any performance on stage, you're leaving out... If you tell the story of your life, you can tell it in half an hour. 
but you're leaving out a huge amount. And so putting anything into words or into a structure cuts it down sure. into the words that are available to you. And so I think that's it. Like I know that's kind of a long haul to get to it, but like the same thing that made me feel like I could control my shock and sadness and horror at this man, you know, falling to this horrible, brutal kind of accident is the same reason why I don't like talking about love. Okay. Do you prefer to quietly just feel it, do you think? Like, do you, do you feel it? I think the way that I express... No, I don't feel love. I'm a sociopath. Uh, uh, I was, you started talking before I got to, before I got to <laughs> chase that up. Like, do you have any feelings, Alice? Yeah, I prefer to articulate... Like, you know, there's that, that you know, classic book about love languages. I prefer sort of physical or, you know, just being with someone or, you know, showing love in ways that are more broad and incoherent, I guess. Sure. You know, you know, even just the way that you like hold someone's shoulder or try to make them comfortable in a situation or give them something or you know, give them a kiss or it, all of those things are more I think for me more accurate ways of articulating the way you feel about somebody flying overseas to see them or all sure. of those things I think are more precise ways of saying I love you than saying I love you because I love you is sort of such a small statement okay how interesting i'm trying to i'm i'm trying to uh, grapple in my mind with whether that means that you place a lot of power in words or not that much power in words i think <laughs> because both i think so as well because like the the power in words um side of it would be that um you you think that words can minimise a feeling or a situation yes. by um, just uh, um, words are failing me now as I'm <laughs> trying to talk about the power of words. <laughs> oh, the irony! But yeah, it minimises them because it's just so simple and it's just laid bare there in a few words in the language, like you said before, the language that's available to you. Yes, you've summarised. Things that might potentially feel bigger than words. Yes. So you've minimised them, which I think makes um, makes words sound really powerful if they can minimise something that's bigger than them. Yes. But then on the flip side of that, yes, <laughs> there's that um, words aren't powerful enough to convey the meaning or the feelings that you're actually feeling. So yeah, I think of words as sort of um, gestural, so they can direct you. They're very powerful, like, for example, a poem or a piece of writing or a joke even. It sort of can, if you can, the way that I think of it is is if you're looking at something, it's like bringing someone's face really close to yours and pointing so that they can see the same thing as you're seeing. Right. You're, you're, in, you're, you're creating a pathway that they can walk down with you and, and, you know, gesturing towards the meaning that is this big meaning that can't be put into words. But you can sort of you can shape a channel with the words. You can you can bring them into a space with the words. You can start to trigger all these associations with words that then put them into that space, so that they can feel or see the thing that is the thing that you're feeling or seeing. 
Yes. So they're powerful in that way. They're, they're sort of structural. They're, they're, they can direct you. They can channel you. They can, they can impact you in that way. But the words themselves are only good for that. Sure. They, you know, they, can, they give structure to that incoherent feeling. Sure. Yeah, okay. I understand that. Isn't it fascinating? It's really um, what's really stuck with me that you said is the language that's avail- available to you. Yeah. And I find that concept really interesting. Uh, I did communications at university and I remember doing a unit called uh, Language, Culture and Society. Mm. And it had a really heavy focus on exactly that, like different languages and certain languages or dialects where certain words don't even exist because that thing doesn't matter. Yeah. Like whatever that object is that we have words for, like it's just redundant in that culture so they don't bother attaching any kind of word to it. And I just find it – I find it really interesting and like grammatical structures and how you can tell a lot about a culture and um, what their values are based on where they place – words and emphasis in sentences and yeah the heart some languages that make it very hard to say no yeah. to things for example and i i agree with you absolutely i think it's a, a really it's a really weird truth about language is that it comes out of concepts and it shapes concepts at the same time yes yes exactly that's exactly right I mean, yeah. That 1984 quote, like, if you don't have a word for rebellion, how can you even think it? Right. You have, you know, discontent or something like that. Yes. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, my job is words, so obviously I think they're powerful and important. Sure. But, yeah, I also don't trust them necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I feel like... Um, as I get older, I find myself in more circumstances that I find difficult to articulate. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's a result of um, just having a lot of new experiences in a very short period of time or if it's maybe, may, uh, maybe having more feelings yeah. Or something like I, f- I feel more complicated feelings. Yeah, more complicated feelings, definitely. Like I, I I I feel that a lot. Like I feel like I've become a lot more in touch with my emotional and sensitive side as I've gotten older. And I'm probably more analytical about things as well, but I find myself on an ongoing basis in in these conversations where I'm like I feel all of these things and I'm trying to convey what they are to you, but Right now, the English language is failing me. <laughs> yeah, in combination with a whole lot. I mean, and then you have the way that language evolves and sometimes it's frustrating or annoying. Like I have, I have a real sort of struggle with the way that violence, the word violence is being sort of broadened to include acts that are aggressive but not physically violent. Yeah, sure. Because on one hand, you want to, or we as a society want to acknowledge and accept and emphasise how much impact words can have and how hurtful they can be and how damaging they can be. But the only way that we, the only word or concept that we have to express that, that that you, you, you say something, it has an impact, it feels terrible, it will change somebody's... Um, way of being for the rest of the day or the week or in their lives it'll shape the way that they behave it can bring up fear it can bring up rage it can bring up hurt 
uh, a feeling emotionally of, of being hurt. But to use the word violence for that, that's the only one we have. Yeah. For that. But then, then there's no distinction in our language between somebody punching you in the face and someone calling you something mean. Yeah, that's, that's true. And it, there's also a lag in how people change their perceptions of those words as well. Yes. So um, some people might start using that in a broader sense and then to people that are still lagging behind and associate that word, so your example of violence, um, people that still associate that with like physical violence and assault and those kind of things if they're um you know accused of being verbally violent or something something like that that will be a really huge big statement for them to take on board yeah and it's a, for, if they haven't come around to that particular use of the terminology because we have these like silos now where you've got evolving language yes completely separate from other silos where they don't so it's a nonsense for them they're like i didn't hit anybody yeah i didn't yeah. injure anybody yes and so that's a really, you know, there's real culture clashes in terms of the way that people use language now. Absolutely. And so, social media is accelerating those uh, those things as well. I, I find um, something in this vein that has really struck me lately is uh, the term triggering. Yes. And, and how um, we... We can't just, um, again, in certain silos, we don't just upset each other or miscommunicate things. We trigger each other. Yes. Which originally was a Very term. specific medical term for, you know, kind of shock, PTSD. Exactly. You know, reactions which would kind of disable you in reaction to seeing something that reminded you of an assault or a terrible experience. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas now... Um, yeah, now it would be like if, if you said something to me right now that maybe I didn't agree with or something and I arced up a little bit and my tone changed a bit yeah. or I got defensive or something, then these days it's very commonplace for me to be like, well, you triggered me or, or yes. for you to say I'm sorry for triggering you by saying that thing but I wasn't aware. And I find that a really interesting evolution of language as well because, for, again, for people that haven't caught up to that broad use but are aware of where it comes from then they feel like people are overreacting yeah so that you know if i say something and it makes you upset or angry or really genuinely outraged and 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 hurt that's still in my head short of triggering an attack of psychological illness sure yeah because yeah because that was the thing is that like to originally to be triggered was it was a big thing it wasn't to feel a bit upset in that moment yeah but, yeah, it would take somebody right back to a terrible event or something. Yeah. Which might result in them being on a downward spiral for some time after that as opposed to in the moment being like, wait up. Yeah. Oh, ow, that hurt. Yeah. It's, and, yeah. And it, it, it's, it's a really interesting thing because I think one of the, mo one of the strongest mnemonic triggers, one of the strongest triggers for memory is smell. Mm -hmm. But we don't – no one's trying to control or – moderate smells in public like it's even though sort of scientifically speaking that's your biggest danger in terms right. of for people who are genuinely having these kind of ptsd type attacks it'll often be a smell right 
or you know the feel of the air or you know these these kind of incohate things but now it's you know words the word i remember there was a big scandal about somebody trying to stop uh the word assault in in legal education or no violation violation of the law on what grounds that the that the term violation was triggering for rape victims okay sure so you can't say that somebody violated the law yes okay okay so this was the that was the discussion that was happening. Okay, and, interesting. And, I mean, that's that's a ter- that's sort of reminding you of a terrible thing is not the same as triggering a psychological attack. Right. Necessarily. Right. Sure. And then it makes me wonder how much, and this is going to sound really mean, how much of these things are cultivated by. I'm going to have to tread very carefully here because I'm not sure, and this could sound really awful, but how much of being upset by something is cultivated by being allowed to be upset by something? I I completely understand what you're saying. And you're right, it's definitely subject matter that you have to tread very lightly around, in you in general, not you personally. Um... Yeah, I don't want to but say. But it's that almost like it, it's it's almost um, o- like opening up another door. Yes. Like um, pointing out something that could also be perceived in a certain way. Yes. That maybe to date hadn't been perceived in that way. Yeah, like I didn't know that I was meant to or allowed to be upset by this thing. Yeah. And the obvious analogy, which is going to be even worse because it trivialises, you know, the very real pain that people feel. The obvious analogy is when a kid falls over and they check with their parents. Oh, and then the parents are watching, so then they... Then they burst into... Okay. You know, if the parents yeah. look upset or worried. And, and that's obviously massively trivialising a very complex issue where people's feelings really are getting damaged and hurt and their, their place in the world can, can be, you know, influenced by the way people speak about them or speak to them. Their sensitivities are very real. Reactions are very real. But I think there's some part, and I don't know how much, whether it's like 1% or 5% or 20% of it is like, oh, I'm allowed to be upset about this. This is the thing that I'm going to let my feelings overflow and I'm going to, my moment of maybe discomfort or upset or hurt can become this massive thing. Sure. Yeah. And it's impossible to quantify it is and, and and a dangerous thing as well because you don't want to be one of those sort of insensitive people who's like no pull up your socks you know yeah yeah definitely Stiff up a lip shell shock like yeah yeah oh yeah it's it's very tricky isn't it it's yeah and it we we are so heavily influenced by language as well but it, it's it's like the epitome of chicken and egg for me yeah. Like with with language and um yeah, feelings and like do does has the language evolved because somebody's felt in a certain way and decided that, that language can now be attached to those feelings as well? Yeah. Like is that how it works? Like like I'm curious as to how things progress, um, how words progress and how they do in, evolve as well. Like who like where's the tipping point? Like where where does somebody start using that word in regard to something different and people don't call it out? They're just like, oh, yeah, cool. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. going to use that as well. You a, know? A good one is is something like uh, queer. 
Yeah. Where for a long time that was not a term of abuse. If somebody was called queer in the 1890s, they would have read that as, oh, you're a strange person. It had yes. nothing to do with sexuality. So it was not traumatic for somebody to be called queer. Yeah. And then it became a term of abuse and then it was reclaimed. So there's a full spectrum of legitimate reactions to that word sure. which has changed over the time that that there are words now that you know even now there's a sort of a debate about the term transsexual mm-hmm. versus the term transgender sure uh, that that you know p- people who transitioned in the 70s and 80s for them transsexual was the word for what they were sure they use it for themselves they and now it's sort of they're being told by the younger generation yeah yeah that it is an offensive word that is a hate term and that they themselves shouldn't use it sure that's a really interesting one that's very interesting if you have taken ownership of a label or a word and you identify as that and people being like well we disagree with that word and we'd prefer if you took on this word that we're comfortable with. Yes. Like, that's not really a thing, is it? Like, <laughs> like it's I fair s- enough if you don't want to use that term yourself, but... I saw this real in real time on a... So I'll, I'll, I'll provide a uh, little bit of um, context, which was that my costume this year is sort of a, an elaborate costume. It's the first time I've worn a costume on stage, but it involves a sort of a red PVC corset and these big red shoulder pads... And so I, I joined up on a corseting Facebook group mm-hmm. just to sort of see if I could make it myself. I couldn't. It's very complicated. I got a friend to help me make it. Um, Alicia Fernandez, if you want to know, she also makes Tessa Waters costumes. She is great. But uh, I didn't log off. Occasionally you get these nice pictures of ladies wearing corsets and it's great. It's a nice little boost in your timeline. <laughs> I saw this debate happening between somebody who two people who were both on the autism spectrum, Mm -hmm. which is the current accepted medical terminology. There's not a lot of weight to it either way. It's it's an evolution from calling someone an Aspie or someone who has Asperger's because it's such a broad spectrum. Okay. It's one of those, it's fine. Maybe soon it will become a hate term. For now, (laughs) it is the medical term. At this point in time. (laughs) So two people on the autism spectrum, one of whom called herself neuroatypical. Okay. And then... Another one who came in and said, actually, um, neuroatypical is a really unpleasant word for me to read. It, you know, I have other issues that mean that that's sort of a jarring word and it, I have synesthesia and it doesn't feel good, that word. I prefer neurodivergent. Okay. And the neuroatypical lady said, well, this is what the groups that I'm in call it and this is what I am. And then the other one said... I've just told you the term that I feel comfortable with. You not using that term is an oppressive act because I've told you that I feel uncomfortable with it and you're continuing to use this term rather than neurodivergent, which I prefer. Yes. So they're both, I mean, essentially in this argument, they're both the same person. You know, they're both a person who has this particular condition or this particular set up in their brain. And one of them saying, I prefer this word. The other one saying, I prefer this word. Yes. Neither of them has more kind of, I don't know, victim power or stakes in the situation. I've, and they got so angry. It was like 30 messages on this completely harmless, like yeah. women wearing, uh, women and men. And, and just, it's a completely open forum. Everyone's really careful about gendered terms. They don't say ladies. They say, you know, people or whatever. Sure, it's, they're very sure. careful about this to make it a welcoming and open environment. 
that is very like that was in, in that was really off the rails for me. It's it's very very tricky. I had a very I had an almost identical experience, but it was actually me in the centre of it. Last year, I did a Facebook post on my comedy page, and I consulted. Um, a, a person who I know who is a wheelchair user yep. about this post and it was um, um, I, I, I phrased it I, and this was on her recommendation I phrased my post to people with disabilities mm-hmm. um, upon her advice and a, um, a very dear friend of mine, uh, I've got a few friends who are wheelchair users who are um, amazing disability rights activists mm-hmm. and um, one of them contacted me immediately and was like, oh, no, no, nope, <laughs> uh, we are disabled. We are disabled people. And it was that exact thing like you saying people with disabilities or people living with disabilities minimises and um, oppresses rather. Yeah. Oppresses and it's like we don't want to use that word because that's a bad word which then obviously, um, you know, you can move across to being like uh, being disabled is bad. Yes. That's why using the word disabled is bad because being disabled is a bad thing. Yes. So we can't use that word which is very a very similar logic and makes perfect sense to when people are like um, – or, um, you know, the tram's late, that's gay. Yes. And it's like we know that nobody wants the tram to be late, which does that mean that nobody wants things to be gay? Yes. If you're applying that label to that. So well, gay people take a long time to get ready. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Not me. It's a two-minute two two minute thing for me. Um but yeah, yeah, and it it is really interesting because I I thought I'd done the right thing by asking someone, mm. and her perspective was very different, and to my other friend's perspective, and and several people backed him up as well, and not not that I was seeking that, but I subsequently did because I posted an apology, yeah, and I was like, look, I'm really sorry, I consulted, and I thought I was doing all the right things, and I'm really sorry that I offended, and. I, you know, I've learned a lot from this and whatever. And, it, it, you know, it, it obviously wasn't a, a dreadful, dreadful thing because saying – obviously saying people with disabilities isn't grossly derogatory. Yes. You know, it's not like all of these young basketball teams having to come out and apologise for doing blackface, <laughs> which is mind-boggling <laughs> yeah. that they still think that's okay. But it's not on that scale, so it wasn't like – an emotive, awful, crazy out there. Even the term crazy, like I can't, yeah, I, I've just exactly. said the term crazy, and it's, but it wasn't. It wasn't a wild apology to make. It was just like I've used this term. I consulted with somebody. I'm very sorry. I've learnt what it is, but um, what is more favourable? But then it's like more favourable to the majority of people that I have at my fingertips as resources right now. Yeah. It's more favourable, but obviously this one person has told me that term and in good faith I've thought that that's correct. Yeah. And th- and that's the interesting thing. Like, I, I'm getting more and more scared of yeah. language. and you can do your research, but then, you, d- you know, who do you go to for the research? There are so many different forums for fact now. Right. And particularly when facts are facts about opinions right what's acceptable in society like as an etiquette thing those things are constantly 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 being updated and also you know how much do you blame someone for ignorance 
because I mean, when it comes to legal issues, there's no ignorance is no defence in the in the face of the law. But we're getting increasing legislation about offence as well. Right. But you can you cannot know between one day and the next what is going to be offensive, or you can be completely ignorant. So, for example, very early on in my set, I had a joke about uh, a friend of mine who has very dark skin, mm-hmm. and how I. We, were, we ended up out of a car walking along a highway at night mm-hmm. and uh, we were joking between ourselves, this is in the reality of it, of which of us was more safe if the next person who came along on the highway was a murderer. Right. Because I was much more visible in the darkness than my friend who had very dark skin. Right. right. So that was the, the premise of the joke. And somebody came up to me after the show and was like, you cannot make jokes about black people being invisible in the dark because that's racist. Okay. And in my head, it was not, because it was a conversation between me and my friend, and it's physics. It's the way that light refracts off colour. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay, so, sure. And it was a, you know, obviously it was a conversation between the two of us as equals on this road, on this highway, wondering if we should try and get a lift or if we should walk on to the next bus station. That was basically the conversation. And he was saying, look, if the next one's a murderer, I'm just going to blend into the shadows. Sure. And they can take you. So the status, there was no status relationship between us in that context and there was certainly no racial status. Sure. Do you think that's the yeah. issue? Do you think that, that when you have a very specific context like that, which is uh, being able to have conversations and jokes like that on the basis of a friendship and all the goodwill at- attached to a friendship and the rapport that you've built between both of you, do you think that that is a difficult thing in general to relay? Yes, I do, because there's sort of structural inequalities that don't exist. But I, at that time in my career, I didn't even know that that was something that you couldn't say that you couldn't talk about something that is a fact or that was you know for me it was wasn't loaded it wasn't racial at all it was just a matter of sort of pragmatics do you think you would have made that joke as well if it wasn't anecdotal yeah i don't know i pulled the joke in the end because i thought oh it's i mean in my head some jokes are worth making some people are worth offending some principles are worth offending sure like i know that you know my, my presence as a lady with her head uncovered in public is offensive to some people. I think those people deserve to be offended. Okay. You know, there are some principles that I think... I don't think offence is necessarily a bad thing per se. Okay. It's useful to be offended sometimes. And sure. And question why you're offended and whether it's, you know, all of that. A lady with an education, that's offensive to people. Sure. Mixed-race marriages are offensive to some people. Like, all of that stuff I think you should offend. Sure. But if the joke isn't good enough to be worth hurting someone's feelings, even if your intentions are the best, then you either need to rewrite the joke or dump it. Right. But I I thought that was a really... Because up until that time, I hadn't known that that was a a point of sensitivity. I think a a slightly less loaded but equally relevant example would be the term fat. Yeah, sure. Which is... That's definitely topical. Even if they're fat... Yeah, it's topical, isn't it? Because it's always been a, it's always been a derogatory thing. But it's it's one of the probably the newer offensive, I say in inverted commas, that you can see, yeah. <laughs> but the listeners can't. Um, 
it's been uh, it's like the newest like, like offensive term. Yes. Offensive term that is being reclaimed. Yes. You know, and um, so you get uh, you get a lot of um, particularly women on Instagram who are like fat fashion bloggers, and that's what they call themselves. And fashion. And yeah, 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 love it. Yeah, fashion. And um, you get. Uh, I notice on a lot of queer dating sites um, that it's a, a part of identity that people list. Yep. Like people will say like I'm um, queer, fat, and femme, mm-hmm. and it's it's something that they're taking ownership of to um, describe themselves as now and bringing the power back into it. And it it is it's it's a really a really interesting one and a very topical one. And I've been reading a lot about it lately, actually, because um, I, the Mia Friedman, Roxanne Gay blow up. Of um, Do you want of contextualise that for uh, our listener. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, basically, um, Mia Friedman did a she did a podcast for Mamma Mia, and um, she was she'd interviewed Roxanne Gay mm-hmm. about her new book, uh, which she's she's been touring around promoting, and um, she interviewed her, and she in the foreword of the podcast and then in the article that was subsequently published in Mamma Mia, she um, basically spoke of the demands that Roxanne's publicity team had had of her team to accommodate Roxanne's size, Mm -hmm. which she admitted openly, she said, this is usually between me and you know, the publicity team and whatever, and I wouldn't ordinarily um, breach the confidentiality of these requests. But in this context and in light of the book about, um, um, which is called Hungry, and it's about, uh, well, I haven't read it and I will be reading it very shortly, but it's apparently about um, Roxanne's... um, uh, relationship with her weight and how and and her relationship with food and and the link between trauma that she suffered as a a twelve year old and um and so yeah Mia thought that it was appropriate to say well since this is what the book's about I think I can disclose yes that, that the, it is the, difficult to live in the world as a person who's very big yeah and so and these are the struggles that Roxanne has which she knew of. Yeah. In confidence. And apparently some of them were taken out of context as well and weren't actual demands that were made or requests that were made. But they were um, parts of conversations that Roxanne had had about people's assumptions ah, okay. of what her needs were. And then, and then the, the, you know, this is obviously all hearsay and what you, what you read in the media. But, you know, some of them weren't actually saying oh, Roxanne needs to know if she is going to be able to walk into the building. How many steps will it take from the taxi? But it was more anecdotal things of Roxanne saying that people assume that she can't walk into the building based on her size. And so Mia has taken that and and said, like, she needs to know. She needed to know if she could get into the building and if she'd fit in the lift and all of these kinds of things. And so it was obviously – well, obviously to me, like my assumption is that it was a PR grab – yeah. By Mamma Mia. I mean, I, I can't I mean, that's a relatively safe assumption given that their entire business is grabbing PR. Well, <laughs> you know, of grabbing course. Grabbing attention, grabbing... Exactly. And very sensationalist and in many ways as well. 
And, um, yeah, for better or worse, they often raise attention to issues that would not otherwise get attention. Yes. Uh, and arguably in this instance, they have ended up doing some good for the world by sparking this debate. But that's correct. what their motivations are, other than drawing more eyes to their website... Sure, we'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know, but we can we can definitely make assumptions about it. But you're right. It was good. It was good that it did open up a a broader dialogue about that. But one of the interesting things that most interesting things that came out of it for me was there were a lot of think pieces going around about how um, it is still targeting people's weight is still one of the most accepted forms of discrimination. Yeah. Which is interesting because whether somebody is fat or not is a fact, more or less. Like, sure. Obviously, it's contextual compared with, you know, starving people, we're all fat. And, but compared with, you know, giants, we're not. But in the mainstream of society, if you're bigger than everyone else, most of the people who are around you, that's just a fact. Sure. I find it interesting when, yeah, things that are statements of fact become loaded. And obviously they do. I don't object to that. For example, the use of of the word gay as a negative thing. Sure. That's, you know, it's just a fact about someone. It's a neutral fact about them. You you know, in certain societies it might be uh, a fact that that indicates something about their life experience, that their life might be harder. It might be an unfortunate thing to be gay in a certain society because you won't be treated as well or because you won't have the opportunities. You know, all of those things are... Yeah attached to it and equally with with being fat it's it's a morally neutral thing it's just a fact about a person yeah yeah so why did that word become so loaded yeah and how like how did it it, because we could we could start it right now that calling somebody overweight is the worst thing in the world, but yeah, there was that's a, there a medical was a term that's okay to say. To being called curvy because she said it was a euphemism and it was used to denigrate larger women. But right, curvy was one of those things that was in- instituted to avoid the word. Fat. Yeah, to soften it. To soften like, it. Yeah, literally. Like, you know. Actually, like curvy sounds nicer. It's less. Um, Less abrupt yeah, and less more, to the point. It's, it's a more, more palatable associated word. Associated with attractiveness as well. Absolutely. You know, that, yeah. You know, we're not saying where the curves are, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly right, though. It's like, yeah, and that's what we do. We endeavour to find words that will soften the blow that other words are, uh, have dealt. But it's like, why did we attach that well, power and that that? Um, derogatory connotation to that word in the first place. Yeah, which is why to go back to my kind of my now, um, you know, very old joke, it was I think it was my very first set that I did. For me, I wasn't aware of the idea that noticing that somebody was a different colour was in itself oppressive or bad. Right. So for me... The fact that my friend was a different colour was a fact. Right. But not, not one that was loaded with any kind of status implications. Yeah, sure. It's just... It, Particularly it's, when you're both walking yeah. along by a highway at night. You know, sure. And you're in that conversation with them. Yeah. And it's, it's a, a, a conversation with an even balance in it and you're both enjoying the conversation. Yes. And bringing new ideas to it. And you've got an understanding between the two of you. Yeah. And you are both fully aware of the fact that your skin is different colours. Yeah, but the... 
but the, then to try and convey that to a room full of strangers yeah, is like, so when, why are you when talking people about become, that? And I don't know if it's a good trend or a bad thing. I think it's good that people are more sensitive about other people's feelings and more conscious of these kind of structural inequalities. But in this world now where private conversations can very quickly become public and be treated as... And you're held accountable for private conversations in the same way as you would be held accountable for public conversations. It's really, I don't think, a good trend because it doesn't take into account the the power between you and the person you're talking to. Sure. That makes sense. So, I mean, the obvious one is, is uh, two people of the same class or type calling each other the derogatory name for their class or type in fun. Right. You know, you might say to a, a queer friend of yours, I don't know, something, you know, shut up, query, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know <laughs> I love that even in this context, like, you probably feel uncomfortable, like, coming up with a slur on my behalf. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean? And, and totally. But if that, if that comes up, you know, in – if that gets – leaked which everything does now yeah then you're accountable for that as though you had shouted in in a public arena yeah and and taken out of the context as well very frequently taken out of the context and just viewed as a slur on its own merit or whatever without um yeah without any consideration of who it was spoken of between and what their relationship is and their dynamic and all of those things and that um, that unspoken agreement of how you can speak to each other. Yeah. Which is exactly right. Like, yeah, if I think about some of the terms of, of um, endearment and, and the greetings and things that some of my, say, gay male friends and I would have. Yeah. And then, that, like, they could never say that to another another gay woman who they don't know very well. They wouldn't be able to say that. Like... And, you know, like just little things like um, uh, I think about some of my friends like calling me a raging leso or something or like... Yeah, yeah whereas ha- if a man says that to you in the street. A like, yeah, exactly. And it's just like, or like, hey, leso, what's going on? And it's like th- that, would, that would be a lot of uh, gay women would be mortified by that, by that term, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of straight people would be like, what is going on here as well? Like, am I witnessing a homophobic attack? And, but between us, like, that's perfectly acceptable because we're comfortable with our relationship and with our relationships with our own sexuality, so we can say that. But, yeah, the second that you pull that away and then, and then suddenly it's just like, oh, I saw this guy, like, yelling out that Kirsty Webeck was a leso on the street. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly it's like, oh, my God, is she okay? And yeah. it's like, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. That's okay. That's how he greets me. <laughs> yeah. So it's that, it is that really interesting thing where now we, we can't ever really be sure that our stuff won't be taken out of context. In fact, I am sure that at some point if I continue to get more um, popular, fingers crossed, um, <laughs> oh, something's going to come out. <laughs> something that I've said at some point to somebody is going to be one of these scandals of the week. Yeah, definitely. And and the thing is is that it might not it might not even be out of context. Yeah. It really might not be like that and I think I think that's the thing and I think because we do we do work in an industry where we play with words. Yes. Constantly. 
it is becoming an increasing fear of mine because I pride myself on having inclusive humour. Yeah. And and I, that's very important to me. Yeah. And and I, I imagine it's very similar to you as well, where you want it to be inclusive and you wanna you wanna tackle certain things for sure, but you wanna do it in an accessible, inclusive way that won't punch down on anyone. Yeah. And I find myself writing jokes and then trying to circle the joke mentally and come from every direction and make sure that I am satisfied that I think most people won't perceive this to be punching down or there's no – like I've got this joke. I've got this joke about moving house. Yeah. And and about removalists and when I started doing it, it's it's a joke that I really like and it it often does very well. And I I got to a point where I was doing it and I just had this epiphany one night – after I'd done it where I was like, oh, my gosh, I hope people don't think this is a classist joke because <laughs> I, like, I was like, it's certainly not. And so I put this, like, little line into it about, you know, exactly that. I'm just like, this is not, this is not a joke punching down on people that are removeless in any, in any way, shape or form. I love removeless. If it weren't for them, I'd be languishing under a fridge on a staircase as we speak. Yeah. You know, and for my own peace of mind, I had to add that in because I'd, I'd looked at this joke and I was like, no, this is a good joke. It's, it's fine. It's not punching down on anybody. It's, um, you know, it, like whatever. And then I was like, oh, no, people might think that I'm saying that being a removalist is a terrible job and I'm not. Well, see, now this one's an interesting one because I have a joke in my show at the moment that has already got some sort of – I've had a, one or two people come up to me um, – and talk about it. Interestingly enough, when they talk about it, they don't remember the actual joke. They just remember that it was about a certain topic and that it made them uncomfortable. Okay. And I wanted right. to make them uncomfortable, but I also <laughs> stand by the joke. So it's a joke about how uh, the the wearing of the hijab makes me uncomfortable in the same way that anyone, any sort of standards for women you know women who wear have breast implants or women who have wearing push-up bras or women who are wearing very high heels on cobblestone streets anyone who's sort of any expression of womanhood that seems to be imposed by an idea of how women should look makes me uncomfortable right right but because i use the word hijab because it's a specific thing and i draw attention to how it looks some people are super uncomfortable with it. Really, really, really uncomfortable. Yeah, okay. As though, as though it should be invisible. Yeah, you need to just erase as though, it. You know, in that way that people used to say, oh, I don't see race. Yeah, sure, sure, I don't sure. see hijab. Like, I, yeah, sure. I don't see a push-up bra. That, that, that something that is a... a and, and maybe it's sort of tied in my head a little bit to that idea of, like, you shouldn't draw attention to somebody's colour or their weight or their size. And you shouldn't. You shouldn't... Um, you shouldn't draw attention to anybody's personal attributes, I think, in a negative well, way. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not necessary. It's not necessary, and, and particularly on a personal level, you would never say, oh, you're looking particularly limpy today to somebody who had to use a walking stick. You just, yeah. you just don't. But I think the more general point is useful about standards for women's dressing. And so I make that joke despite knowing that if somebody's not listening 100% and if they're not with me 100%, they're going to walk out thinking I'm an Islamophobe. 
Right. Yeah, like it's risky, like even just using that word. Yeah. Even that just word will just stand out and it'll yeah, be like... even just using the word hijab. And, and yeah, and, and putting it into the context of a comedy show as well. It's just like, you don't touch any of that vocabulary. Yeah, are you, say, are you saying that hijabs are funny? No, yeah. I'm saying that anything that women wear as a signal of their womanhood is weird. Right. It's like, oh, to you, yeah. which is why it's in your show. Yeah. Sure. But just any, yeah, any of that stuff looks surreal to me. Are you, are you, do, do you think that you're, you're fearless with, with your content of what you, of what you put on I'm stage? I'm terrified. Yeah. But I, I want to talk about uncomfortable things and I want to talk yeah. about things that make me uncomfortable. And for me, that, that whole segment was about me. Uh, it's, it's basically the same as I had a, a male friend who cried when I didn't text him back. And the next time we met up, he, he cried okay. because he had been emotionally hurt by the fact that I hadn't texted him back. And my reaction was one of, like, sort of disapproval or disgust or, like... And I, and I, and I thought, wait a minute. Am I being sexist? Is it that I think that men shouldn't cry? Yeah, like and he is that why this up. has made me uncomfortable? So yeah. th- then I was like, no, actually, I think nobody should cry. In res- you know, like <laughs> nobody that. should cry ever. Well, <laughs> yeah, generally that was the joke that no one should ever cry. But, but in that context, I thought it was a disproportionate response. It wasn't that he was a guy. It wasn't sexism. Yeah, sure. And so, this, in the similar way, when I when I went to the Middle East and I was hanging out in the Middle East, and you know, there's sort of standards about how you should dress, and they tell you those standards and I was like I don't like this I don't like I think it you know this is uncomfortable to me and I'm like is it because I am racist or Islamophobic or no it's that I don't like people telling me what I should wear yeah I don't like any of that stuff and I understand that you know, and then sort of the next step of the thinking was like, I understand that it's a choice for most or many women and certainly in the first world in Australia it's a choice. Sure. For, for the most part, unless you're in a very oppressive family, you would wear traditional religious clothing because that's what makes you feel good. Yeah. And it's what makes you feel like who you are and it's an expression of your identity and it's just an expression of your religious allegiance and your community, right? So... If it's a choice, why does it still make me uncomfortable? And then I was like, well, breast implants are a choice and those make me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, sure. Of course you're allowed to, if that makes you happy, sure. But why does it make you happy? Is it that you feel like you look more like a woman and that this is how women should look? Right. And so that was kind of the, the process behind the joke and I hope that I explain it well enough in the joke. But I want it still to be a joke. So it still needs to have an impact. It still needs to have that slight discomfort and that slight release. Yeah. But I understand that if you don't go with me on that, you're going to find that joke offensive. Sure. And for me, the question is, is it worth that potential offence to make the point that I'm making? Is the joke big enough to... Is it? Do I think what I'm saying is good enough and yeah. useful enough to be worth three people in a hundred being like, no, Alice is a racist. Is it worth okay. that? Or someone being like, oh, is she's she judging me? Or, you know, and for me, that joke, I think maybe the reason I'm talking about it, it just is over the line for me. I like it. I like that joke. Okay. I think it's well written. I think the point is a good point. 
it's a contentious subject and it's interesting to me and I unpacked my, my own discomfort with my reaction and I think I stand behind it. Yep. I think I'm not being Islamophobic. What I think is I'm being, uh, you know, feminist. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, the, the reason that I'm uncomfortable is because I'm a feminist, not because I'm an Islamophobe. Sure, sure. Um, and so I stand by that joke. Yeah. And but, I, yeah, 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 that's what it comes down to, isn't it? You've got to back yourself. Yeah. And so if I upset someone with that joke, I cannot, I can't in good conscience apologise. The only kind of apology I could give would be one of those weak tea, well, I'm sorry that you were offended. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, wasn't my yeah. intention. I'm, so, I'm sorry, you took the liberty of being offended. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, this is this terrible thing of, like, I don't, I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. But I think if you were offended by that joke, you're wrong. <laughs> I admire you greatly for that. I'm, I am not at a point yet where I have the skills as a comedian I don't know that I am either, man. <laughs> like, and and will we ever know if we are? I'm not, I'm not there yet, like, within myself, though, to be – there's a lot of things that I have in my five-year plan that I would like to tackle, and I just – I'm working up to it, and I, I admire that you're terrified, but you still – you jump in there and you, you tackle issues that – a lot of people can't while well, I'm talking about removalists on stage still <laughs> and worrying that people think I'm classist. Like. Yeah, but this is the thing. Like, this is truly – this. I think this joke, like, if someone goes in wanting to take me down and they publish part of that joke without context, yeah. I'm, I'm the next one against the wall, you know? Yeah. I'm the next point-scoring, social media virtue-signalling <laughs> target. <laughs> And, any, and and literally, if that happens, I hope that I have the moral courage not to give a grovelling apology. Sure, sure. I think you also probably have enough people in your corner that know what you're about. I hope so. And who and who also understand your comedy and your writing and you as a human being yeah. enough to be like, no, 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 this isn't what she was doing. Yeah. And it's clear. And, uh, yeah, but the, yeah, there's this, the idea. I think you know it, it is something that directly affects me as a woman how women are told to dress across yeah. cultures. Sure. Um, and so I feel like I have some authority to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I feel that on the flip side all the time as well. I mean, people uh, always commenting on how I dress like a boy. Yeah. And it's like, well, I dress like a person who's covering their genitals so they yeah. can be in public. Yeah, I'm like, not, look, I'm not fucking leaking on anything. <laughs> I'm appropriately clad to be out in the public eye. Yeah. And I'm dressing, I'm dressing like a woman because I am a woman. Yeah. And I've dressed. Yeah. <laughs> And these clothes fit me. Yeah. And they might have been from the men's section, if you will, but we created that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and that, and that's a judgment in itself. Yeah. Like, you, dr- you dress like a man. Well, righto. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, more men should wear pretty frocks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. But you're right. People do enjoy speaking to us about how we dress. Uh, definitely more so than men, 100%. I mean, that's a proven fact. I mean, you look at the red carpet. Who are you wearing? Yeah. How many men get asked that? Everything that you wear as a woman is a statement. 
including your body. Yeah, just wearing your body around town in itself. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's true. That you're making a statement about who you are and who you care about and who you want to identify with. And it's just your fucking body. Yeah, you know? you, I can't leave it at home. And I think, you know, I had a very good friend um, say this to me when I was worrying about my weight, which goes up and down. And he said, look, just eat a normal amount of healthy food, do some exercise, and whatever you're left with at the end of the day, that's you. Yeah. You've got to be okay with that. Yeah. Because otherwise you're living a really difficult life. Absolutely. And I feel like that, you know, with clothes, wear what fits you, what's comfortable. Yeah, what makes you feel happy to be out in public without stressing about what you're wearing. And whatever's beyond that, don't worry about it too much. Yeah. Yeah, that's always my baseline. Like, especially when, you know, when I have to go to, like, sort of formal events. And they're, they're very gendered. Formal events is, like, the epitome yeah. of, of uh, the genderization of clothing, isn't it? Yes. And, like, weddings are always... I, I used to do a bit about weddings and about how you have to either go full woman or gentleman. Yeah. At a wedding. And, of course, I go gentleman. Yeah. Like, <laughs> definitely. Um, no one's ready to see me in taffeta. (laughs) (laughs) I just had a very strong mental image. You would look like a delicious wedding cake. You would look beautiful. But I always go, I go full gentleman and, um, and yeah, I, for the longest time I felt really uncomfortable about it. And then I was like, but what? What other what other clothing would make me feel more comfortable in this setting? And and it, the answer was none. Yeah. And it was like, well, so you now you go to weddings nude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even have that baseline of being like, well, I've covered up my genitals. <laughs> I don't even have that. I'm like, I'm here, everybody. I'm I'm really sorry. It's, uh, look, I couldn't wear. Yeah, I couldn't find a suit on short notice. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. This is what you've got. <laughs> you weren't ready to see me in taffeta, so I've left you with this. <laughs> but um. Yeah, we're working through that and being like, well, what would make me feel more comfortable clothing-wise to wear to a wedding? And it was like, no, nothing would. Mm. This is the most comfortable I'm going to feel at a wedding. I'm never going to be in a dress. I'm never going to be in a skirt. I'm very happy. I, I did go to a wedding in a skirt once and that was awful. And um, <laughs> so I was like, this it's the, the mental thing of being judged and being worried about using the female bathrooms and all of those kind of things. That's where my hang-up exists. It's not how I actually feel leaving the house. Like, I feel like a hunk when I look in the mirror. <laughs> a hunk ready for a wedding. I've seen photos. You look good but, in a suit. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> but, yeah, it is. We're, we're constantly under the microscope with what we wear and it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. All right. That's. Uh, I think we're hitting the wall and there's some people chatting in this lobby. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, on all the Facebooks, Instagrams, Twitters at um, Kirsty Wiebeck. It's W E B E C K. I'm all over it all the time. She's very good on the social media. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. My pleasure. Thanks, Alice.